You know, before I get started here this morning, I just want to first apologize to any of you that were here on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. And the reason that I have to apologize to you is I'm going to do something this morning that uh, I have only done three or four other times in the last 22 years that I've been here at Bethel. And that is that I'm going to share this morning what I did on that Wednesday night. Um, it doesn't happen very often. As it turns out, it's about once every five years that I do it. But there are occasions when I will leave a Wednesday night and have this strong sense that what I shared on that Wednesday evening needs to be shared with everyone. See, if you all would come on Wednesday night, we wouldn't have this problem, but... <laughs> There are just some times when I feel that way. And, and uh, you know, I have to work through those feelings because sometimes it's just me. And then there's other times when I really believe that it's the Lord that's leading me to do that. And um, not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before that, I really felt that way. I sat down. I had a direction that I had in mind. I wanted to go in that. But every time I pushed it, I just felt the Lord bringing me back to Wednesday night and saying, I want you to share this with them. This is what I was going to share last week with you, and then God, you know, he interrupted the service and wanted to do it his way, and that's great with us. We love that. And then through the course of the week, the Lord just said, no, I want you to do this, especially in light of what we're going to be doing today in our prayer and our fasting. How many of you know that we all need to be praying more than we've ever prayed before. How many of you are, can, like, some of you just need to start praying, but the reality is those of us who are praying, we know we need to be praying even more than what we are right now. Our prayers need to be more powerful, they need to be more effective than they've ever needed to be before. And I believe that there are some things that we have forgotten regarding prayer that have kept our prayers from being answered, that have kept our prayers from being effective. And that's what I'd kind of like to talk to you today. I'd like to talk to you today about the attitude of prayer. You know, through the years, many of you have heard me say from time to time that long before we pray, long before we enter into, as Jesus put it, the closet of prayer, long before we lift up our voice, long before we utter a word, long before we separate ourselves unto God to pray and to seek His face, the Lord has already determined whether he will hear our prayers or not. Now, if you're hearing that for the first time, that can be a little alarming. Uh, it can be a little shocking to hear it. It, it, can, it can even be a little offensive when you hear it. And the reason that is, is because all of us have been led to believe through the years that God hears everyone's prayer. That God considers everyone's prayer. That God will answer everyone's prayer. That all prayer is equal in the eyes of God. And that as long as we are talking, God is always listening. But I want you to know that a careful and thorough examination of the Word of God would show you that the opposite is actually true. God doesn't hear everyone's prayer. Not all prayer is equal in the sight of God. 
God does not consider everyone's prayer. God does not answer everyone's prayer. And we just need to realize that even going beyond that, depending upon the heart of the one who is praying, prayer can even be offensive to God. Prayer can be an abomination to Him and can actually excite the wrath of God Because that individual is not where they need to be before him and they are acting presumptuously in the presence of a holy God. And I know that again, that's hard for us to understand, but just try to understand it this way. That prayer has little, if anything, to do with what I'm saying. It has everything to do with the state of my heart before God Almighty. God is not impressed with my words. God is not impressed with how well I can articulate myself. God is not impressed with my powers of persuasion. God is not impressed with how well I can make my presentation to him. God is not even impressed that I invoke the name of his only son, Jesus Christ. God is not even impressed with how many scriptures I can quote before God. God doesn't need my words to know what is in my heart. He doesn't. In fact, I was thinking about that this week. In Romans chapter 8, Paul made this observation. He says that there are times when the Holy Spirit intercedes through us with groanings that cannot be uttered. What Paul is saying is that there are times when your life is so difficult that you can't even lift up a word to God because all you can do is weep and cry. And God says, that's fine. I know your heart and I hear what you're saying. How many of you are thankful that you don't have to be a great communicator to pray and seek God? God's not that way. Prayer has little, if anything, to do with what I'm saying, yet it has everything to do with the state of my heart. Long before I bend my knee before God, He is already searching my heart. He is already searching out the intention of my heart when I pray. What is your intention when you pray? Is it to further your agenda or to wait on God for His? What is the motivation of your prayer? Are you motivated to pray because you love God? Or are you motivated to pray because you love yourself and you see God as a means to your end? He is already looking at the attitude of my heart. He is already examining the the attitude I am coming before him in. All of these are being considered by God before I ever go into prayer. Now some people might say, well, are you saying that God doesn't hear the prayer of those who are not in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Not necessarily. Again, it comes back to the heart. This past week I was considering what it says in Acts chapter 10. Some of you know that in Acts 10 we are introduced to a man named Cornelius who was a Roman centurion. But the Bible says that he feared God, that he prayed, that he gave alms to the poor, that he lived a blameless life, but he wasn't a follower of Christ. He didn't know Jesus at this point, but he wanted to know God. And he longed for God and he prayed for God to reveal himself to him. And one day an angel appeared to Cornelius and said, 
Cornelius, your prayers and your giving to the poor has come up to God as a memorial and today he's answering your prayer. And many of you know that what would happen is Peter would be sent to the house of Cornelius. He would lead his entire household to Christ and this would be the beginning of the gospel going to the Gentile nations because God heard the prayer of a man that though not a Christian had a heart for God. See, God looks at the heart. He knows the intent. He knows the motive. So this is not really a saved, unsaved thing as much as it is the state of your heart before God. Are you going before Him because you long to know Him? You long to please Him? You long to live for His glory or for His honor? Or are you just living for yourself when you pray and say, Lord, I need you to give me all the goodies because it's really about me anyway? God's already looked at the heart. And so that's what I want to talk about with you today, the attitude of our prayer, the attitude of the heart. And I want to look at it through the lens of something that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to have you open them to Matthew chapter 5 with me. We're going to get there in a moment. Many of you are going to immediately recognize that this is the first and the longest sermon that Jesus preached while he was on this earth. It was the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up all of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. The Bible tells us that this sermon began with what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude actually does not appear in the text. Now, if you have a Bible that has chapter headings and other headings within it, it probably says the Beatitudes, but it doesn't appear in the text. That was added later by those who were translating the Scripture just to bring clarity to it, but the word Beatitude actually is not in the original letter, as in this case, Matthew was writing it. Okay, The word Beatitude, though, means blessed. It, it means the blessing. And in this particular case, it is talking about the condition assuring a blessed life. How many of you want a blessed life? You want God's blessing on your life. Amen. That's, that's all right. You can say amen to that. Don't, don't think that that's proud. I don't want to live this life without God's blessing. If you want to live the blessed life, though, there is a condition you must come before Him in. This is the condition of the heart that is assured of God's blessing. So in the context of prayer, it would be the condition of the heart that can be assured God is hearing them. Though I cannot be assured that because I'm talking, God is listening, I can be assured that if I come to God in this condition, God will hear my prayer. That I can be confident that as long as I am in this condition, God is hearing my prayer. And how many of you are thankful that God will hear your prayer if you come to Him in the right condition? And many of you know that each beatitude begins with the word blessed or blessed. You can say it either way. Either way is right. Blessed or blessed. And that word blessed or blessed means happy or to be happy, happiness. But it would be very, very important for all of us to not give a very general and broad definition to that word happiness. Because Jesus is being very specific and very focused here. God is not concerned about your quote-unquote happiness. Okay, 
But he is using it in a very specific and in a very focused manner. The word here for blessed means emotional well-being. It means heart peace. It means an inner joy. It is talking about an inner state of assurance and confidence in Almighty God. And this emotional well-being, this heart peace, this inner joy comes only as a result of being right with Almighty God. That is the blessed life. Can I just tell you, you can never really measure the blessing of God by anything that has a shelf life. Anything that will not be with you a hundred years from now cannot be used to measure your blessing, okay? Because I know multi-million, multi-millionaires that have it all but have no emotional stability. And I'm going to tell you, what good are all the things in this world if there is not an inner joy and an inner peace that when you pass from this life, you're going to be with Jesus for all of eternity, so folks, please, we gotta, we gotta move beyond this infantile understanding that I can measure God's blessing by the car I drive, by the house that I live in, by how much money or how little money is in my bank account. None of that means that you are blessed by God. The real blessing of God is that you walk every day with a confidence that though those rise up against me, I will never fall in Jesus' mighty name. It is that blessing. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. In fact, the Apostle Paul would actually build on that in a letter that he wrote to the Philippians. Uh, To the Philippians, you may remember that he said, do not be anxious for anything, but in prayers and petitions, let your requests be known unto God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Your heart and your mind are the seat of your choices and your decisions. Everything you say, everywhere you go, everything you do comes out of your heart and your mind. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, don't be anxious, don't panic, don't be afraid, don't worry about anything in your life. Instead, I want you to take it all to the Lord in prayer and petition, let your requests be known unto God. And at some point, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come and is going to give you a peace that passes all understanding. In other words, you're going to say, I don't understand it. How can I be going through what I'm going through and still have peace in my heart? It's because God has said to you, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And that will guard your heart and mind and keep you from making stupid decisions and making foolish and rebellious decisions because I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I can stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He's going to make a way where there seems to be no other way. Come on, can you give him praise for that this morning? So this is what God wants to come out of our prayer. It's not the sense that I'm going to get everything that I request of the Lord. It's the understanding that no matter how he answers this, it is well with my soul because God is going to make a way for me. And if this doesn't work out the way I want it to, I am assured this, that eventually he will will work all things together for good because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose in Jesus' name. So that's kind of the introduction to the Beatitudes. Let's read it. Go with me to, again, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. 
And then he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! Wow. Many of us complain when that stuff happens. But Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets and were, who were before you. Amazing. Did you notice that before the blessing came, they had to come to him, in every case, in the right condition. That is something that is not just new here. That was even in the Old Testament. In fact, the psalmist David wrote in, in uh, Psalm 24, verse number 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Even David recognized that not everyone will ascend to the hill of the Lord. Not everyone will stand in his holy place, but rather those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who have not lifted up their soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's clear throughout Scripture that the blessing comes upon those who approach God in the right condition. Now, some people say, well, that sounds like work, and that sounds like I've got to earn God's favor in my life. That's not true. But what I would say is this, is that why is it we're abandoning the relational component of our relationship with God? I mean, just, just think about this for a moment. If I were belligerent toward my wife, and I were constantly tearing her down, and I were ignoring her and her needs, and I just was not a faithful husband to her in any sense of the word, how audacious would it be to, for me to come to my wife and ask anything of her? She would just say, wait a minute, you haven't considered me? You haven't considered how you treat me, my character, my needs? You haven't considered anything? You need to change the condition of your heart, and then we can have fellowship. Folks, why would we think that we can ignore God completely? Like, there's some of us, honestly, you've never gotten before the Lord and say, what do you desire for my life. What do you want? Do you want me to date him? Do you want me to go out with her? Do you want me to marry them? You don't seek counsel and you live your life the way you want to and then you go to God and you demand of him and God says, wait a minute, we don't even have a relationship. You know, folks, we can't leave that relational component out of our walk with God. God says, don't come in here with no consideration of my heart and my character and my vision, but rather come into my presence carefully considering my heart. Prayer is not really about you. It is about God revealing himself to you so that now you can reflect God in the world you live in. In Jesus' name. So how do we approach God? How many of you want to be assured in your heart that God is hearing your prayer? 
three of you. How many of you want to be assured that God is hearing your prayer? Okay? This is how we have to come before Him. Number one, we have to come before Him in dependency. We have to come before Him in dependency. That's up there on the screen. Math, it should be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 3, Jesus again says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven is not promised to everyone, but rather those who are poor in spirit. Now, listen, clearly he is not speaking of physical poverty here. It's spiritual poverty. How much or how little you make makes no difference to God. That is not impacting your prayer life at all. How many of you are thankful for that? Amen. God hears the prayer of the wealthy and he hears the prayer of the poor. It, 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 that makes no bearing. He's talking about spiritual poverty. The idea here is that of being spiritually impoverished of possessing nothing of any spiritual value or any spiritual ability. It is absolute destitution. It, it means that I have nothing by which I can make it in this world. Interestingly enough, the word poor there in Jesus' day was reserved to a beggar who was so impoverished that they were absolutely dependent upon a provider. And even though I don't know everyone's story here and I don't know where everyone has been throughout their life, I highly doubt that there is anyone in this room that has been in such a place where you had nothing to your name and you had no one to turn to or to lean on and literally you were out on the street and lived only by what anyone was willing to provide for you. Now, there may be some of you, but I highly doubt that there's any of us that have been in that destitute situation where we had nothing and we had no one and literally lived every day dependent upon the resources that a provider may give us. But I will tell you this, that this is the word that Jesus used to describe us when we approach God. So when we approach God in prayer, we have to see ourselves as being absolutely dependent upon God for everything. God says, if you want to get my attention, then you've got to come before me recognizing you have nothing to sustain yourself that you need God to intervene if you're going to make it today and every day in Jesus' name. Folks, when we come before the Lord, we have to recognize that we possess nothing to help ourselves, that we possess nothing to get ourselves through, that we possess nothing that we can make a way for ourselves. We cannot allow one second a thought of self-sufficiency. If you're going to hear, if you're, if you're going to put yourself in a position where your prayers are heard by God, You have got to come to the end of yourself and you say, Lord, you are my source and I am not leaving this house this morning until I get fresh manna from heaven because I can't make it without you. I need your presence in my life. In Jesus' name. God says, to these the kingdom of heaven is given. The Bible says, I will open up the windows of heaven and I will pour out upon you a blessing that you cannot contain. He says that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Folks, all of the treasuries of heaven are at our disposal, but we have to come to him dependently. You've got to come before him and say, Lord, I cannot make it without you. And God says, when you come to that, I will open up heaven 
And I will give you everything that you need for the day in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen to that? I love it. Secondly, we have to come before him in despondency. We have to come before him in despondency. Not only are we coming to him in dependency, but also in uh, despondency. In verse number four again, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, the, the Greek word for mourn there is the strongest word that the Greeks had to describe sorrow and weeping. The Greeks were very sensitive to the fact that when it came to emotions, there were varying levels of emotion that you could experience. And so they had a word for each one of them. And they understood when it came to grieving and sorrow that you were going to grieve at one level when you found out somebody was talking about you or texting about you and uh, the sorrow or the grief you would experience at the loss of a loved one. So they had different words to capture the kind of grief that someone was going through. And the one that Jesus used here was the strongest one that they had. It was referring to loud wailing. A grief that you could not contain. That literally it bubbled up within you and it became loud wailing. People could hear you broken. And this is the word that Jesus used. And it's referring to sin. Jesus was saying that you need to loudly weep and wail over your sin against God. Now Jesus taught us to pray every time that we pray, forgive us of our trespasses. So it is appropriate every time we get before the Lord to ask Him if there is any sin that we have to deal with before we really enter into his presence. So certainly we need to pray for that. And we need to loudly wail over our sin. Can I just really say this quickly? I think that one reason people really keep slipping back into sin over and over again is because they have never really loudly wailed and wept over what their sin has done to God's heart. I think it's very easy to continue in something when you do not see how badly it has damaged somebody's heart and their life. And I'm going to tell you, many of us have never wept a moment over our sin except of what we've lost and never considered what it's brought to the heart of the living God Almighty. But I also think that in the broader sense of the term, he's talking about the fact that whenever we pray, there should be a great deal of sobriety of mind. Sobriety of heart. That whenever we enter into prayer, that this is a solemn and a very serious moment. That when we pray, this is not a time for us to crack jokes with God. This is not a time to be light and, and, and to just feel a frivolity about us. It, there needs to be an understanding that I am about to speak with the God of the universe. That I am about to enter into the presence of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Whose eyes are in every place observing the evil and the good. And nothing has escaped his vision. He even knows the depths of my heart and my thoughts and my intent. I need to come humbly before my God and say, Lord, I don't even deserve to be here. I'm only here by the grace of God. And now I'm going to exalt you by lifting up my request saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Folks, 
There should be a reverence for God when we pray that is so intense that when we consider our lives before Him, we would weep loudly over anything that we've done that may have grieved His Spirit or may have quenched His work in our lives. This is a serious moment. We need to take prayer very seriously. We don't just waltz in and just start throwing out demands. At some point, I have to recognize I'm going before the God of heaven and earth. Holy is his name. I was reminded of that when I was reading a couple weeks ago, Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 34, Jesus said, But take heed to yourselves and be on your guard, lest your hearts be overburdened and depressed, weighed down with the giddiness and headache and nausea of self-indulgence, drunkenness and worldly worries and cares pertaining to the business of this life and lest that day come upon you, the day of the Lord, suddenly like a trap or a noose for it will come upon all who live upon the face of the entire earth. Jesus said, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of judgment is coming. But my greatest concern is that when it finally hits, the majority of my followers won't even be ready because they become intoxicated with self-indulgence, the worldly worries and cares pertaining to the business of this life. In other words, they'll become so drunk with everything that's going on in the world that they won't even recognize the time that they're living in and judgment will strike and it will be too late. And he says, but there is an antidote. Keep awake and watch at all times. Be discreet, attentive, and ready, praying that you may have the full strength and ability and be accounted worthy to escape all these things taken together that will take place and to stand in the presence of the Son of Man. The only antidote that you and I have is prayer. And men, turn to your neighbor and say, the only hope is prayer. It's waking up every moment. It's walking in a state of prayer. It's praying without ceasing and saying, God, the day is approaching and it's coming like a snare. And the only way I'm going to be ready is if I'm praying and discerning that I'm taking this seriously, that I'm waiting upon God for the days are evil. And here's the promise. He says, when you come to me in that way, you will be comforted. You will be strengthened. That's what the word means. You will be encouraged We need courage to face the days that we're coming into. We need strength to make it in the days that we are facing. And folks, that only comes when we come before him in a holy and a broken heart in Jesus' name. Next, we need to come before him in humility. We need to come before him in humility. Verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek is where we get our word humility or humble. You know, as I was sharing with everybody a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about these things, isn't it sad that we live in a culture today that does nothing to support humility? The culture we live in today does not in any way support or lift up humility and meekness. It is, it is exalting pride and selfishness. And, and that selfish, selfish intent of the heart. Nothing in our culture supports humility. The idea of being emptied of all selfish motive or, or intent. Even the acts of kindness and benevolence and, and, and mercy, if you will, that others do outside of the context of Jesus Christ are all attempts to exalt themselves or to solicit feelings that are selfish in the end. 
And don't ever forget that, folks. Now, I'm not suggesting that that people who are not followers of Christ cannot be kind and cannot be benevolent and do giving acts. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I'm suggesting is that if it is done in your own strength and is not done for the glory of Jesus Christ, it is being done selfishly. It is being done to exalt self, to make a name for myself, to prove I don't need God to be saved. I can do enough good to save myself. It is being done because I love the feeling I get when I give. But if I didn't feel that way, I wouldn't do it. That's why God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear, just for your your insight, this is my translation, Jesus says, for your information, you don't get any brownie points for doing good to people you think deserve it. He says, you give a cup of cold water to your enemy. You pray for those who want to injure you and harm you. Can't hear an amen out of that. I remember, I wasn't going to say this. I've never talked about it. I won't tell you the whole circumstance, but I got a, a letter. This would have been, it's coming up on 14 years ago. I can't believe I got a letter one day from an irate man. Did not come here. Um, I was dragged into a lawsuit. It wasn't really a lawsuit. It was, a, it was actually a criminal case. And I didn't, I didn't know that I could have opted out of testifying. I had to take the stand. And I made some statements on the stand that this man did not like because it put the person that he knew in a bad light. And the letter, it said, I will not stop until I expose you for the fraud you are. How much money did it, did it take to pay off your testimony? I mean, it was rugged. He says, I will make it my life's work to bring you down. And I called, <laughs> I called some officials up at the district office, and I said, man, what do I do with this? Because it went, it went to the district office. It went out to Springfield, the letter. And um, they said, well, you're going to need some lawyer. And the, the lawyer talked to me and said, we're going to send out a letter that says, if you push this and you pursue this, that we'll have to take legal action. And I said, well, let me get back on that with you. And I was scared. I mean, I'm a lover, not a fighter. You can tell that, you know. I mean, it's just the way that I am. And, and, and I just prayed, and I said, Lord, this is frightening to me. Not that I have skeletons in my closet, but, you know, they'll just dig anything out. And uh, somebody that's that intent on it, you just wonder, what will they do, you know? And I just felt the Lord say, what did I tell you to do? Pray for your enemies. That was 14 years ago. And nothing ever came of that. I believe, had I got a lawyer, it would have been worse. But because I committed it to pray, to prayer, God took care of it. Folks, listen to me. You don't have to run to lawyers. You have an advocate in heaven that can take care of you if you've done the right thing. Amen. I, it just, it's what Scripture teaches. We should avoid the legal system as much as possible. I realize that sometimes it doesn't have to, but folks, we just have to understand that humility.
before the Lord. It speaks so much. It's not about driving my agenda. It is about humbling myself. When we come before the Lord, we're to come before Him in a humble heart, a truly humble and self-emptied heart, a mind longing for the will of God, for the heart of God, and a desire to live for it in Jesus' name. You know, it, it's interesting to me, the, the word meat there, um, in Jesus' day, it was meant to describe domesticated strength, domesticated strength. And Think of, think of it in terms of a horse trainer or a, a horse that's been trained by a professional. A horse is very powerful. It is very strong and it has a powerful will. But when it's been broken by the trainer, now all of the strength and the power of that horse is not used for its own agenda. It's used now for the wants and the desires of the trainer. You and I have a very powerful and very strong gift. It's called free will. And God says you can use that free will any way you want to. But those of us who are saved, we're meant to be humbled under the mighty hand of our God and King, Jesus Christ. And now we use our free will not to pursue our interests, but to pursue the interests of God. It is to get up every morning and say, not my will, but your will be done. Can you write that down? Like, I read that somewhere. Did, did anybody ever read that somewhere? The Bible. That's right. Jesus said that. You know, some of you are smart, okay? Um, that's what our prayer is every day. Not my will. Most of us go into prayer and say, Lord, this is my will, and let it be done. Jesus says, no. It's about my will being done. Humble yourself. And here's the good news. He says, you will inherit the earth. You'll inherit the earth. Proverbs 13 and verse 22, it says, A good man leaves an inheritance of moral stability and goodness to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner, listen to this, finds its way eventually into the hands of the righteous for whom it was laid up in the first place. God says, listen, the wealth may all be in the hands of the wicked, but it's only because you're not walking right before me. Because when you walk right before me, I'll hand it back over to you. And so that's why we get up every morning and we say, not my will, but thy will be done. Because it's, if it's my will, God's not going to take care of me. But if I'm doing God's will, he'll open up and give me everything I need to complete the task in Jesus' mighty name. Can you give God the praise for that if you believe it? Okay, number four i got to come before him longingly. We have to come before the Lord longingly. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. i got to pick this up. The hunger and the thirst that he's talking about here, in the Greek it is talking about a hunger and a thirst that you can feel and you cannot escape. Now all of us have had hunger pains and all of us have been thirsty, but then there are times when that hunger and that thirst reach a feverish pitch where literally it so consumes you that it directs your thoughts, it directs your movements, it directs your actions, it directs where you're going because you think, I can't do anything else, I can't think about anything else until I get something to eat. 
until I get something to drink. I'm that thirsty. I'm that hungry. So there's nothing else that we have to do. There's nowhere else we have to go until we take care of this hunger and the thirst. And that's what he's talking about here. In this case, it's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. A hunger and a thirst that can be felt, that so consumes us that it directs our thoughts, that it directs our movements, that it directs our pursuits, that it even directs our friends that we choose. There is such a longing within our heart for God and a thirst for His presence that we don't just go anywhere, we go where God is. We don't just get involved with friends that are just friendly and they love the eagles. No, we engage with friends that love God and are moving us closer to Him. Folks, it directs our life. And there's some of us, we wonder, why do I keep ending up here doing these things with these people? It's because you have no hunger and no thirst for God. God help us to find in the church again men and women who long more for God than they do for an Eagle Super Bowl. Come on, can I hear a better amen than that? Listen, I love sports just as well as I do, but you know some of you have spent more money getting ready for your party next week than you've ever given to the things of God. It's amazing the things you say under the anointing. Let me Listen to me, folks. God sees that. And He hears you chanting and singing the Eagles fight song when you can't even lift up your voice on Sunday and praise the God. Man, I have got to move on or I'm going to get in trouble. Psalm 42 and verse 1 says, As the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? As the deer pants for the water brook. When was the last time that you panted after the presence of God like that? Where, where you pressed to the point where I'm not stopping until I touch the throne of heaven. God says, until you come to me longing for my presence like that, I won't hear your prayer. But the good news is, if you come to me longing for me, you will be filled. The people who are not satisfied don't hunger and thirst for the Lord because everyone that I've ever met that hungers and thirsts for the Lord, they're content. Their lives tend to be a lot more relaxed. doesn't mean life is easy, but they're more relaxed because they're filled with the presence of God in their life. In Jesus' name. When we approach the Lord, we need to approach the Lord forgivingly. To approach the Lord forgivingly. Verse 7, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Whoa. Yikes. Did you know that mercy was conditional? Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Now listen, I'm still growing in my understanding of prayer. But if there is one thing I know about prayer, it is this. If I harbor unforgiveness in my heart, God will not Hear my prayer. End of discussion. If you harbor bitterness, unforgiveness in your heart, if there are people that when you look at them, you can't stand them, if there is anyone in your life that you have any bitterness, any unforgiveness, any disdain for, 
It doesn't matter how long you pray. It doesn't matter how intense your prayers are. It doesn't matter how many tears fall from your cheeks. The only one who heard your prayer is you. God does not hear the prayer of the unmerciful. God does not hear the prayer of the unforgiving. You know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will talk about prayer. He'll introduce to us the Lord's Prayer. We know that. I'm not going to read that all, but I want you to listen to something because this is often overlooked. We just read the Lord's Prayer and we get blessed by it, but you have to move beyond that too. Listen to this. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 6 and verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We say it and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Listen to the next word, for. Now, most of us read that and think nothing of it. But do you know for is a very important word because for is tying what was previously said to what is about to be said. So Jesus is not breaking his thought pattern. He is continuing his thought as he moves on and says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus, I believe he was linking that last statement that we just read to the Lord's Prayer. And especially going back, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that by far one of the greatest temptations that the enemy tries to ensnare us in and the one that we need to be delivered from is unforgiveness, is bitterness, And holding on to a grudge and wanting to get even. And I think Jesus was saying, deliver us from the evil of that. Because if I show no mercy, God will show me no mercy. Now listen, I don't know about anybody else. But when I get to heaven one day, I'm going to need all the mercy I can get. Anybody else with me? You self-righteous people today. How many of you know you're going to need all the mercy you can get when you get there? (laughs) So, listen... I let it go. I let it go. Because I need mercy, so I need to show mercy. When I go before the Lord in prayer, I need to be merciful. Number six, I need to be faithful as well. We need to approach the Lord faithfully. In verse eight, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's interesting, that phrase, pure in heart, means the heart is single-minded, That's what he's saying there. Pure in heart is being single-minded. It is being focused. It is being cleansed. It's the idea that I am cleansed from all earthly and worldly affections and attractions and I am single-mindedly going after the things of God. That is my focus in prayer. Folks, when I go before the Lord in prayer, I may be taking my request to Him, but I'm leaving them with Him and I'm saying, Lord, now show me Your will in this. I can't go before the Lord with my agenda and look for God's agenda. God says, you got to choose this day who you're going to serve. You're going to serve yourself. You're going to serve me. 
James said in James 1 in verse number 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let that man ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. When I come before the Lord, not only do I have to have faith that God will hear me when I come to Him in the right condition, but I have to come saying, Lord, it is Your will that I really long for. Because if I'm double-minded, I become unstable in all of my ways. So when we approach, it's with great confidence and faith that His way is the best way. doesn't matter whether I agree with it doesn't matter whether I think that it should have been included in the Scriptures. It's there. I have to obey it. God says to these, they will see God. In my mind, that is, they will see God move in their life. They will see God work in their heart and their life when you come before Him and say, Lord, Your will, not mine. When I come before the Lord, I have to come peacefully. <laughs> I have to come peacefully. He says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Not everyone is called the son of God. Those who are peacemakers. Now, understand that primarily he is dealing here with peace with God. What he's saying is, those who make peace with God through his son Jesus Christ, they are the sons of God. That's the better way to understand it. And certainly whenever I pray, I need to make sure that I'm examining my heart and that I am at rest with God. There's nothing that is outstanding that needs to be dealt with. But in the broader context, it is the idea that I, as best as I can, am living in peace with all men. Remember Paul said, if it's possible, and I love that, because it's not always possible, because some people don't want peace, okay? But if it's possible... As much as depends on you, live in peace with all men. With how many men? <laughs> with how many men? <laughs> no. Be in peace with those you like. No. All men. The Greek word for all is all. <laughs> Everyone. It's all inclusive. As much as depends on us, we're to live in peace with all men. So when I go before the Lord, if the Lord there reminds me of an issue that exists between me and a brother, me and a sister, the Bible is clear that I am to leave there and do my best to be reconciled to them and then come back in prayer. And folks, I, I can't for a moment entertain the thought that I can let that conflict go on and it's not affecting my prayer life. I have a responsibility to do whatever I can. Now listen, people say, well, how do I do that? Not an expert. I'm just going to tell you some things I've learned through the years. I don't expect anyone to ask for forgiveness for something they did not do. Okay? I, I'm not that person. I don't think you have to be a martyr and take a ho the whole responsibility for everything. Okay? But what I do believe is that we should take 100% responsibility for the percentage that we are responsible for. Very rarely in conflict is there one completely innocent person. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear a better amen than that? Okay. You know, we all want to put it on somebody else, but rarely, rarely 
is one person completely innocent. So let's, for argument's sake, say that you are 5% responsible for the conflict that's with another person right now. God expects you to take 100% responsibility for your 5%. And to go to that person and say, I am so sorry for what I've done. Would you please forgive me? What can I do to make this right It's not enough for you just to say, I'm sorry. What can I do now to make it right? And listen, just just another thought. When you're done with that, don't say, but if you hadn't. I mean, that just shows you're not repentant. You know, you go and own 100% of your 5%. And I know some of you are thinking, well, what about their 95%? That's between them and God. And you've got to leave it with the Lord. You're going... As much as depends on you, you're taking care of it. You live in peace. If they don't want to accept it, that's on them. But you have done what is right before God, and then you can come back to the prayer closet, and God will hear your prayer. Not only do we have to come before him peacefully, but finally, this is the last one. And there's just no other way to put this. I wish I could have come up with a more clever one, but we have to come before him at times, not every time. As victims of hostility, as victims of hostility, he goes on there in verses 10 and 11, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. I'm not always persecuted, but when I am for my faith to whatever degree, I am to take that to the Lord and not retaliate in any form or fashion. Not. I go to the Lord. Now listen, this is not for injury and harassment that you receive because of evil doing. Don't you think that you can camp out on this verse because you're suffering the repercussions of things you said you shouldn't have said, did that you shouldn't have done, gone where you shouldn't have gone. This is not... God saying, oh, come to me. He's saying, go and make that right with your brother. This is exclusively dealing with those who have been attacked because they had to take a stand for Christ. Some of you have experienced that in your family. Some of you have experienced that at work. Some of you have experienced that with some of your friends. Thankfully, we have not been persecuted like most of the people in this world are persecuted. But we have all suffered a little bit because you've talked and you've said, listen, I can't let that conversation go there. I've got to leave because I can't engage in that. And I can't do that, and I can't go there. And they've laughed at you, and some of them have broke up the relationship and no longer your friend, and your family has said, no, we don't want you over here anymore. You've experienced that. What God says, don't fight back. You come to me. Because great is your reward in heaven. Because you've done what is right in the face of many wrongs. Listen, I cannot have a vengeful, spiteful spirit and expect for God to hear my prayer. Can't fight back like that. It's not of the Lord. You know, some people will immediately point out David. They love David, okay? And they'll look at the Psalms. Have you read Psalms? 
you know, not a very good book to read if you're angry at anybody because David prayed fire and death and murder upon all of his enemies. I mean, David, just a lot of his psalms, he just cursed his enemies. Can, can, we just, can we all be mature enough in our faith to recognize that just because David said that doesn't mean that that is the right way to pray? From the Bible, we learn some things to do and other things we learn what not to do. That's a far cry from Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a long way from Stephen being stoned to death for his faith in Christ, crying out for those who were stoning him, do not, Lord, lay it to their charge. That's how the New Testament believer prays for those who spitefully use him. You say, what does that mean? What does it mean when you say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, Do not charge them with this wrong. What you're basically saying to God, think about this. You're saying to God, Lord, I'm asking you to, to treat them as if this never happened to me because I've forgiven them for what they've done. So I'm asking you mercifully to not charge them with this wrong. What, what they've done with other people, I have no control over. But please, for what they've done to me, don't let judgment come. Don't let it be counted to them. I've forgiven them. Wow. you imagine the father hearing that? I can just hear the father hearing someone saying that, saying, that's my boy. That's my daughter. Because that's my heart. God is not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. That'll get the heart of God moving in Jesus' name. Folks, listen. We serve a great God. And all of the resources of heaven are available to us if we approach God in the right way. So as we go before the Lord in prayer every day, can we just make a concerted effort that we will not just barge into his presence with no consideration of our heart, but long before we enter into his presence, can we examine our heart? Because I guarantee you, God already has. I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed. And right there in the closing moments here, Can you just take a moment and just think about the things we've heard today? And just ask the Lord to show you any area in your life that maybe you've approached Him presumptuously. Father, 
in messages like this.